Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Dairy Pod. I'm Rory McDonald from the Dairy Australia Farm Team and today we're talking with Dairy Farm Consultant Phil Shannon about the importance of profitable grazing management and maximising utilisation of homegrown feed on your farm, in particular directly grazed pasture. There is a huge opportunity for most farms to dramatically increase profitability by improved pasture management, so this podcast is well worth a listen. We had the conversation over the internet again, so sorry that the sound quality isn't as good as it might have been before this period of social isolation. I kicked off the discussion by asking Phil why getting grazing management right is critical to every farm business. The cost of production is in the main driven by feed costs and we've got data from, uh, from lots of farms over time that show that to keep your cost of production reasonable you need um, a fair amount of relatively cheap feed available and it's although the argument goes on over time do we include the cost of land in the cost of homegrown feed it almost always works out that the, the lowest feed cost feed that you can get is homegrown feed and particularly the direct grazed portion of that. Once you start conserving feed, there's losses and costs in the conservation process. There's also losses in energy. The quality of conserved feed is never as good as the direct grazed feed. So uh, to keep the cost of production down, most grazing based farmers have to have a sharp focus on growing and consuming as much of that feed as they possibly can. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't use supplements. They're very complementary, but to keep cost of production down, you really need to focus on growing and consuming as much feed as you can. Okay, Phil, yeah. And I think you mentioned a couple of good points there, like um, the quality of that, of that feed is also a really important factor, and that can be hugely variable depending on, on how well you manage uh, the the pasture. There is a bit of a perception that you know concentrate supplements are better quality than than um, you know a, a kilogram of dry matter of, of ryegrass. But you actually, I've heard you say before that a really high quality kilogram of ryegrass is equivalent almost to uh, you know a good quality supplement elsewhere. It's it's always it's it's an interesting one because often our conversations talk about the response to the last kilo. And we all know that there's less fibre in a kilogram of concentrate, so a cow's likely to produce relatively more milk because she can fit that last little bit in. But I often look at the energetics saying, there's, there's just as many goodies in a kilogram of pasture as there is in a kilogram of concentrate. So in theory, they both produce, have the potential to produce the same amount of milk. The big difference is, in most years, the concentrate will be double the cost of the direct grazed pasture. And that's right, Phil. Yeah, and you mentioned about the um, the cost of, um, of of directly grazed pasture. I mean, I know it's a difficult thing to put a an exact number on, given that there's different regional differences of variations and species and and all of those things. But but broadly speaking, you know, what would what would you use when you're trying to put a cost on a kilogram of dry matter, um, you know, in in rough terms, and how much extra cost is attached to that? Then, if you are to, as you said, maybe conserve that or or put it into into bales or, or, or pits or, 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 or you know, do other stuff with it to, to add extra cost? Yeah, it's a hierarchy. I think a really important concept is is relativity. And it's um, it always, always sounds like you're dodging a bullet. Someone says, how much does homegrown feed cost? We all know that it's a fact that it does depend. So say 18 and 19 was a tougher, drier year, didn't have as much moisture. Farmers didn't grow as much grass. 
they still had some unavoidable costs. So their cost of pasture was higher. It's not so much about the cost of grazed feed. It's relative to the next feed that I'd have to use if I didn't take the opportunity to grow and consume that feed source. So I always look at it saying, look, you can grow pasture for around in a rain fed area, you know, around 80 to $120 a tonne. If you conserve it, you might chuck another 80 bucks a tonne on top of that. And I keep focusing on saying, yes, you've added some cost to conserve the feed, but if you didn't conserve it, you'd be forced into the marketplace to buy another feed that would be even more expensive. So this, this term relativity is really important if you can get your mind around it. When you wake up in the morning, the cow needs a certain amount of feed and you are gonna feed her until you start breaking even or losing money. And so it's smart to feed as much of the cheapest feed source first. And then if you don't have enough grass, then go to the next cheapest or best value feed source. And, and that's a good logical way to approach farming. So yeah, that's a good point, Phil. I think in more recent years, I guess with irrigation water availability in Northern Victoria springing to mind, you know, the, 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 the importance of pasture as, as the cheapest source and homegrown feed as the cheapest source has probably been come into question a little bit in areas like that. So do you want to have a comment on that as well? Yeah, I, I think that's where my, um, my understanding and my, um, the way I communicate with farmers is, is being really comfortable to say it is, it is about relativity because there have been years in the Northern Irrigation region where after buying water and then applying that to pasture, the cost of pasture then becomes more expensive than other feeds that you can buy in the marketplace. What we have to remember out of that though is that the cost of production is really going to be hit hard if there's no relatively cheap feed. So it's a really good example where in the Northern Irrigation region where we can't just assume that the cheapest source of feed is homegrown feed. It's generally the cheapest source, but if you have to add irrigation water at high price, it's gonna become expensive. So the more farmers understand this concept of relativity, what's the cheapest way and the most effective way to feed my cows given my unique situation this year? In some years, Northern irrigation farmers will choose to buy other feed like failed standing crops and grain rather than use irrigation water. That's just very smart. If I just keep coming back to it, the majority of farmers have land and if they've already invested the money in growing and establishing a pasture, if they get their grazing right, the homegrown direct grazed pasture should be the cheapest feed source and allow them to keep their product, cost of production down. I've heard you say before there are isolated exa examples where there are certain feeds that might be cheaper, like certain byproducts. But you know um, that's probably rare enough. You know, apart from maybe your example of the irrigation uh, district in, in northern Victoria uh, in more recent years with a high price of water. But you know. Is it possible at, at times that you can get certain byproducts that could even be cheaper than pasture? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. There, there are people who are located geographically located close to where there's, they used to be called byproducts, Rory, and now they're called co-products, anything you, you whack a value onto. Um, the market seems to have sorted that out pretty well now. Back in the early days, farmers had mixing wagons and they could buy all kinds of things were way cheaper than homegrown feed. Uh, not many people can access that. And I still think that once you've established that pasture, it's there to be grazed, you should try and graze it to get as much of it as you can and then top up with the other feed sources because the pasture, if it's not looked after this rotation and grazed properly, it won't be there next rotation. So you're dead right. There are people over time that have been able to find feed sources that are cheaper than direct grazed pasture. The main aim of this podcast is not about 
what's the cheapest source? It's if you do have access to relatively cheap homegrown feed, how do you make the most of that to keep your cost of production down? Yeah, exactly right. I think building on from that uh, from that point, Phil, um, you know, the question I suppose is uh, high pasture consumption is or maximum pasture consumption as much as you can uh, within your own farm is, is an important aim. I think we've established that pretty clearly now. Um, but I suppose the nuts and bolts of that, how do farmers actually go and achieve that in, in your view? Well, there, there's a couple of main components to that, Rory. There, there's establishing and maintaining dense pastures so that uh, per hectare, you've got the opportunity to grow as much as you can. Um, the one I'll focus on a fair bit in this podcast is, is understanding the tried and true science-based grazing guidelines. We, we've spent a lot of money on research to work out how we get the most from ryegrass-based pastures. And I just note on that, in this podcast, we'll mainly talk about ryegrass because it is the main um, species used by dairy farmers. There's lots of good advice on all types of other crops that farmers will use, and there's really good guidelines for grazing them as well. But in this, to keep it simple, we'll just focus on ryegrass. So there's establishing and maintaining dense pastures. There's understanding the, the science-based grazing guidelines. Um, most importantly, I think, is, is having a method to put the grazing guidelines in place, because it's not like set and forget. Um, climate variability and climate changing climate conditions means that you've constantly got to have your finger on the pulse to be able to change your grazing rotation and grazing approach with the seasonal conditions and that's that's a key um, and then after that there's, there's also um, managing soil fertility so there's irrigation drainage practices and other soil modifiers there's a use of those to, to optimize growth yeah i guess you've kind of having sat through several feeding pasture for profit programs which is the um the main da kind of course dairy australia course that that we have to um you know teach better grazing management principles on Australian dairy farms. You know, I think I've heard you before distill it down to two key rules. That if there was two things you really want to take out, out of this discussion or in general from it, uh, feeding pasture for profit, um, do you want to give us a, a, you know, an overview of what they actually are? Yeah, and I will try and keep them simple because the, the more complex you make it, the harder it is. Uh, what, one, one word I do like to change, and I'm probably uh, bad at saying it in the past, is, is grazing rules. There's no such thing as rules. There's, there's guidelines, really good. Top, top dairy farmers understand that the, the, they're guidelines only. It, it's, at times you need to bend the guidelines to fit the unique circumstances. A good example is um, when we're coming into a, a, a wetter period, some farmers will deliberately choose to eat into the cover so that they can take the cows away from the pasture and feed them somewhere else for a period. And others will um, build covers higher to give the soil some protection coming into wet conditions. So um, they're guidelines not rules. Now the two main guidelines are about when to graze and about what to leave behind after grazing. So again if we focus on ryegrass, the main aim with ryegrass is to aim to graze the pasture, put the cows into the pasture or cut it for silage when it's at the two to three leaf stage or canopy closure, whichever one comes first. And the second is to leave four to six centimetres of ryegrass residual behind between the clumps. It's not an average over the pasture, it's physically four to six centimetres of residual between the clumps. So Phil, canopy closure you mentioned there, you know, not every farmer might be familiar with that. Can you just give a brief kind of description of exactly what that looks like in practice on, on, a, on a ryegrass ward? 
Yeah, it's, it's one often in groups, um, you ask someone to define canopy closure and they struggle a little bit. So I like to be able to describe that in a, in a paddock where you actually say, number one, canopy closure is, is when you're starting to have the impact of sunlight not reaching the lower leaves. So if you're just standing in a pasture and you observe that the whole paddock is covered in grass and there's almost no dirt to be seen, you can't see through, you're probably at canopy closure. And I then explained to farmers that it's really easy to fine tune it. It's very measurable because if you think it's canopy closure, you should then reach down to the ground and open up the pasture sward. And if you open up that pasture sward and see that the top of the pasture is a nice dark green and the further you look down the pasture, the more yellow it becomes, then that's, that means you're right into canopy closure if it is very yellow at the bottom. And the other thing that happens really when you're in canopy closure is you get stem elongation, which means that the bottom of the plant's struggling for light, so it starts to extend up. So there's a, a drop in quality, not only because you're growing more stem, but you've also got yellow, yellowing, de decaying material in the bottom of the sward. And of course, the, the implication for that is also cows don't like to eat that stuff. So canopy closure is very measurable and, and I, th I think most farmers should get a really good handle on measuring when they are at canopy closure. Just one other comment on that is, I would say that for most of the grazings for the year, farmers will be choosing to graze when they reach canopy closure rather than when they reach a certain leaf stage because most farmers with modern ryegrass cultivars and good use of fertilisers um, have plants that are reaching canopy closure before the three leaf stage. And so remember the guideline is to graze two to three leaf or canopy closure, whichever comes first. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Phil. I think some of the more kind of um, uh, you know, experienced farmers will probably be aware that maybe 15, 20 years ago, the, the cultivars of ryegrass that were around probably focused on that three leaf stage. And, and, and I think you're, what you're saying is that you know, the more modern, maybe tetraploid ryegrasses with the larger leaves are, are, are reaching canopy closure a little bit sooner and therefore you might need to get in maybe two and a half leaves or two leaves at times throughout the year in order to um, maintain the quality of that pasture and, and, and maximise the quality of the feed going down the cow's throat. That's right. And, and technically, um, it, once you've hit canopy closure, the, the plan is harvesting as much sunlight as it can. So you're losing on both fronts. You're, you're setting back any opportunity for new growth, um, but you've also got that decaying and stem elongation in the bottom. So it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and particularly at a really interesting time is in spring when plants really hit that zoom phase. Often they'll be at canopy closure by the two leaf stage. So if you've got plenty of pasture to allocate and um, you're in canopy closure, there's a fair chance that you've grown a lot of feed that's just going to be wasted and then have to be topped. The topping is an interesting point there, Phil. And I think, um, you know, as you go into spring, you know, farmers will be familiar that the, the pasture growth rate picks up dramatically as the sunlight increases and the temperature increases. And, and farmers often find that they leave longer residuals. And I think you haven't quite detailed the exact residual height uh, that you're looking for you said four to six centimetres, but it's probably in that spring period where it gets even trickier to maintain the residual at the correct height and, and manage to avoid topping. Like, is there a place for topping or how often should you do it? You're asking the hard questions today, Rory, when I can't use visuals to, to describe it, but I'll, I'll, I'll have a go because 
Yeah, the residual is important. Just one thing I want to note for a start, often in paddocks, you'll look at a paddock and farmers will be saying, oh, they've decked this today. And, and no one has actually physically got down and measured the distance between the soil and the top of the residual. You'd be surprised how many people think a pasture's been absolutely decked and yet it's, it's comfortably in the four to six centimetre zone. So just, just a little note of warning in discussion groups is, you know, have we got our eye in for what is the right residual? You'd be surprised how low the correct residual actually is. In terms of topping, in grazing-based pastures, there's always going to be contamination, always, unless you've got cows that are trained to nicely only poo when they go to the laneway or the dairy yard. So there's going to be contamination, there's going to be clumps. Um, what I try and explain to people is that if you're in a high rain-fed area and you've got really healthy soil, you'd be surprised how quickly those clumps break down by the next grazing. And so there won't be much need for topping. In other areas, the clumps, the clumps will stay and they'll stay for one grazing and they'll still be there at the second grazing and potentially the third. So the need for um, mechanical removal um, really is gonna be very different. And it's not a cop out, it's actually saying, as a farmer, you only need to understand your own farm, not anyone else's farm, there's no, guideline, no, there's no rule of you must top. The, the time when you should top, the old guideline was when, if you looked at a paddock after grazing and 20 to 30% of the paddock area was in clumps. And that meant that 20, 20 to 30% of the, the, the paddock may not be grazed down to the right residual again next time. And that starts to have a flow on effect. So, Topping definitely has a role. Some people often ask about pasture harrowing instead. Def that's definitely not the same thing. A pasture harrow does not knock a residual back. A pasture harrow will remove um, contamination, but it won't physically reset the residual. So to me, um, you often will be topping more often in early spring, mainly because it's harder for you to get the allocation right so that they do graze down to the right level. One other thing that we do notice a lot in spring is that farmers have that rapid growth phase and graze just a little bit after canopy closure. And of course, once you get to canopy closure, the plant will go into elongation. So the cows are smart. They don't want to eat anything other than the quality feed. So they will start to leave higher residuals and therefore you'll need to top more of the paddock more often in spring. But as I, as I said earlier, it's really important you only need to understand the clumpology for your unique farm. You need to know for you, when do you top? When is it important? Um, another example would be around farming systems. So some farmers really focus on high production per cow, and this isn't a criticism or a um, trying to make a comment on which systems are right. But if, if you prefer to chase higher production, there's a fair chance that you'll leave a little bit more grass behind. That's your preference. You like to see a little bit more in the vat rather than a little less. So you'll probably have to top more often to physically get the residual down. If, if you're someone who chases milk solids per hectare and, and, and is a bit anti-grain, you won't need to top as much logically because the cows will be driven to take the residuals down themselves. Again, not right or wrong. Un, un, you only need to understand your own farming system. I think we often forget, Rui, that Farmers are, in the main, farmers are very experienced. They've been building their own unique farming system for, for quite a few years. And they don't do things to get them wrong. Usually the things that you see are so left field are things where you scratch your head and just go, they probably just don't understand what they're doing. 
in the main, they all understand their systems and do a very good job. Phil, what about tillering and uh, aerial tillering and persistence? You hear a lot of farmers talk about modern ryegrasses failing to persist. And I know there's a lot of reasons for that. It's not just to do with management, but, but management probably of the, of the pasture does have an impact on, on persistence. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a really interesting discussion talking about persistence and all of the, all the theories as to why pastures don't persist. I, I think to keep it simple, um, the thing that will allow your pastures to persist the most and actually thicken up will be if you follow the grazing guidelines. Those grazing guidelines, um, if, you, if you participate in an FPFP program, you probably get bored for about an hour when we explain in a lot of detail all the science behind why it's so amazing that if you can hold four to six centimetre residuals after grazing and then allow the plant to recover after the two to three leaf stage or canopy closure, that, that's the best thing you can do for the plant itself to actually produce daughter tillers. And it's, it's, good way, it's, it's a good way to think about it is, if you've got one seed that you sow in the ground and that grows out, each time um, it grows out, it might produce another few daughter tillers. And then the next grazing, before the next grazing event, those daughter tillers will have produced their own daughter tillers. And so the more that you can get that plant actively growing healthily in that range between four to six centimetre residual between clumps, and out to two to three leaf stage, if plants are actually thickening up, the root system's healthier, the whole plant is doing its best to be persistent. So whether you've got other bug issues and soil health issues and other things that might be affecting persistence, the main thing that'll affect persistence is sticking to good grazing guidelines. Rotation length is, is a really important component of, of, of good grazing management, Phil. And as you know, the, you know as everyone knows, the pasture doesn't grow at the same pace throughout the year. Um, so, so managing the rotation length is, is an important aspect of good grazing management. And in the Feeding Pasture for Profit program, we have a, a tool called the Rotation Right Tool, which I know it might be difficult to explain in a podcast metri- medium here, but um, if you can give us a brief outline of, of what that looks like and the importance of rotation length to good grazing management. Yeah, okay, um, I'll, I'll have a go at it. As you said, it, it's, it's, um, it could be difficult to cover, but we'll give it a go. Uh, rotation length to me is much, much, much easier to manage than the residual, because the rotation length is purely about having a system that allows you to leave a paddock with the cows today and not get back to that paddock until it's regrown to the ideal stage for you to graze it again, which would be two to three leaf stage or canopy closure, whichever comes first. So to me, round length in theory is relatively simple. It's the practice with round length that's difficult. The practice is often confused with uh, paddocks that grow at different rates, um, paddocks that are in the rotation this round and not the next. So the rotation right tool is simply a rotation planner. In, In principle, all the rotation right tool does for you is tell you how many feeds to get out of each paddock to achieve a certain round length. If I give you an example, if you wanted to have a 30 day round length, so the paddock that you left today, you wanted to be back there in 30 days and it'd be fully recovered and ready for the next grazing. You just need some way of splitting your farm into 60 feeds over the next 30 days. That's assuming that most farmers graze twice a day. 
The rotation right tool simply takes your understanding of your farm, your paddock areas, and how well each paddock grows in relation to each other, and generates that plan. And when it generates the plan, it generates it for a whole range of days, a 15 day round, a 20, a 25, a 30. The importance of that is that you don't have to go back and recalculate every time you think that the round length needs to change. You simply look at the grazing planner, the rotation right tool, and it will tell you that if you want to increase the rotation length, how many extra feeds do you have to get out of a paddock today? The same when you're reducing the rotation length, it'll actually say to you, if you want to change from a 30 into a 20 day, you can probably give them more of that paddock today. So how many feeds do I now get out of that paddock to make sure I'm on my target rotation length? Um, if you haven't been exposed to the rotation right tool, I think it's really worth even finding someone who is using it to explain to you how it works. It's just important to be clear as well, there, there are some farmers that, that have a different approach to the rotation right tool. And I've, I've seen the rotation right tool in action on several farms and it definitely does work and it's made a big impact on those farms. Some people may prefer to use pasture measurement and, and look at, at something like a plate meter or another system of measuring actual kilograms of dry matter per hectare and allocating pasture that way. Um, it's just an alternative to that approach, isn't it? But ultimately it's about utilizing the grazed grass as efficiently uh, and as optimally as you possibly can. Yeah, that's right. It, it's, it's interesting. I think you and I have talked about this a few times, Rory, where um, some people think that that um, the rotation right tool is, is something evil at times. Um, usually that's by people who use plate meters. But the, the plate meter or the rotation right tool are just means to an end. They're just both ways of implementing the right rotation length. So they're not in competition with each other. It's really just about your preference. Do you prefer jerseys or frisians? You know, what type of peak dip do you use? It's, it's your preference. They both put you in the same spot at the end. So um, if you're very competent at using the plate meter, it will give you the data or the information you need to get round length right. Alternatively, if you're not a fan of the plate meter, then the rotation right tool will give you the exact same answer at the end of the day. Where do I need to put the electric fence today so that I'm on the right rotation? So it sounds like, Phil, that there isn't really much difference between um, the approach you take in order to profitably feed your cows, whether that's uh, the feeding pasture for profit principles and the rotation right tool, or alternatively, if you're someone who measures pasture and uh, using a plate meter and or other measurement tool and, and actually allocate kilograms of dry matter per cow or per hectare. Yeah, it, I'm glad you've asked that, uh, Rory, because it's, it's really interesting. Often those that don't understand uh, FPFP, feeding pasture for profit, think that um, it's great failing is it doesn't teach farmers to physically measure grass in kilograms of dry matter. Uh, rarely do I have a farmer who's good at using a plate meter that comes through the program that doesn't actually say both methodologies align beautifully and end up in the same spot. Ultimately, the reason why someone's measuring grass is to preempt the right round length. So to measure growth rates to get round length right. And also to make sure the cows are fed to the most profitable level. So if you're using a plate meter, you'll, you'll allocate a certain amount of grass and assume the cows are getting that, then you'll work out what a cow requires and top her up. With the FPFP process, we get to the exact same point, but just in a different way. We use the rotation right tool to say, 
not how many kilograms of dry matter can we give to the cows today, but of the whole pasture cover on the farm, how much area can we give them today to make sure that we're not eating into the wedge or building the wedge higher than it needs to be? So we get the answer on, is the rotation length correct? When it comes to supplement, we just use some fairly novel tools. And again, their measurement and their science-based ways of asking ourselves, if I fed more supplement or less supplement, would I make more or less money today? That's the exact same thing that you are trying to do when you're using a plate meter and a back calculation or an estimate of cow requirement. So both put you in the same spot. So I often get frustrated when people think that without physically measuring pasture in kilograms of dry matter, a farmer can't possibly be profitable. I would be able to give you hundreds of examples of farmers who do not need to estimate the kilograms of dry matter, but their annual business performance and their daily margins would clearly show me that they have that absolutely nailed. And on top of that, there are also lots of farmers who were plate meterers and are not bad at visually estimating kilograms of dry matter who will constantly tell me that it's a much simpler way to use the FPFP process. They do both end up at the same position. Um, the reason why I wanted to make that point, Rui, is I think there's quite a few people who have a, have a fear of being involved in an FPFP program, and yet it would probably add to their skill set, and they'd probably quite enjoy the challenge of the discussion of bringing their focus back onto grazing management rather than assuming that they learnt that 20 years ago and they've moved on. I've had a lot of farmers participate in the FPFP program and, and say, gee, I'm really glad I've done this. You know, it's really refreshed my focus on homegrown feed. And if we go right back to the start of the podcast, for a lot of farmers, homegrown feed is the main driver of cost of production and therefore farm profit. Yeah, exactly right. And Emma, I think, you know, you summarise that quite well there, Phil. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity and I'm pretty sure you would agree as well. Like the, the evidence from a lot of the benchmarking programs would, would show that there's a big variation between some farmers who are able to grow, you know, several tons more than their neighbours on pretty similar land and pretty similar cow sizes. So that says to me that there's an opportunity for a lot of people in the industry to significantly increase the amount of homegrown feed that were to grow. And, uh, you know, like even a, a modest target of an extra ton um, per hectare, I know it's difficult and it's dependent on weather and dependent on conditions, would have a massive impact on an average farm that might be 200 hectares, you know, and, and that depends on, you know, what, what dollars you put on an, on an extra ton of feed. But, you know, this opportunity is huge there. Yeah, and, and it's, it's really interesting that we drive around and um, I still think the, the average farmer is, is a very good operator. But that extra, as you said, that an extra one tonne, if that one tonne was there to be eaten and because of poor grazing management or just not quite focusing on growing it or consuming it, that, that one tonne on most farms would be replaced by a tonne of purchased feed. And that's the way I like to try to explain it to farmers is, most farmers are smart and they know they need to feed their cows well to hold production. So if on a day they didn't have enough feed in the paddock because their round length was too short, they would be smart enough to replace that. But the relative cost of that feed would be way above what they could have achieved if they had grown that feed themselves. So I think it's always dangerous that you become complacent with your grazing management. This time of year is one of the classics Rory, where you, you can actually physically see it on farms where you drive past a farm and in the worst case, 
you look at an electric fence in the middle of a paddock saying, I wonder which side of that fence the cows are going to be allocated tonight. And, and that's an easy trap to fall into coming into the winter where people just don't have the discipline to push the round length out quick enough. And of course, if you're getting on top of that pasture, you rapidly get on top of it and it doesn't take long before um, the round length is really short. And then you've got that tough decision of saying, how do I push the round out? I'll have to buy a lot of extra feed in. I'm not sure if I will. So then not only are you overgrazing pastures, but you're also missing an opportunity to produce milk that would have been profitable. So just keep confirming to people that uh, and encouraging farmers to say, it's very easy to become blase about, oh, grazing management, oh, I've been there, done that, don't need to go back again. Even if you only get another half a tonne a hectare over a 200 hectare farm, that's a hundred tonne of feed. If that hundred tonne on average was a hundred tonne of grain at $300, that's a lot of money, Rory. I'd like to be putting in my own pocket. What about annuals and Italians versus perennials? You know, uh, at this point, there's going to be a lot of annual ryegrass and Italian ryegrass, and indeed perennial that's was sown in autumn, you know, coming up over the next few weeks. Um, the rules are slightly different around the tree leaf grazing and a brand new sward of pasture. Um, do you want to just highlight that a little bit for us and how people might handle integrating them into their, the rest of their their Milton platform where you have more established pasture. Yeah, no worries, Rory. Um, it, it's really interesting. Uh, it's an unfortunate thing, but uh, the Northern Irrigation farmers have been faced for quite a while now with re-establishing almost all of the farm each year. And so we've learned a lot more about that first grazing. Traditionally, there was, um, uh, the old wives tale was that with the new pastures, you had to get in and give them a quick nip. Um, I myself haven't been able to find any research that backs up the quick nip. Um, as I looked into it, I found that um, with that first grazing, it's a fact that the plant can actually sustain not only three leaves, but four and five and six leaves without losing any quality. And, and as it grows more leaves, it then also generates more tillers. So in the old days, we'd say, look, the best thing you can do for a new pasture is get in and give it a quick nip. I'm sure part of the quick nip was also about we, you know, we used to sow pastures late and there was a risk that it was in cultivated ground and it'd get wet. And if, if you let it get too wet, then it'd all be bogged and ruined. But the main message for new pastures now is try and let that pasture get out to the stage where it's well developed. So getting closer to canopy closure, which may be six or seven or eight leaves, and then it'll have tilled well as well. The other one is that also the, the longer you leave it, the easier it is to achieve some kind of residual left behind. If I try and visualise that in your head, if you've got a new seedling that you've sown and it's only been there for four or five weeks, there's a, there's a fair chance that it's all leaf and no stem and a, and a small root system. So if the cow comes in and sees that, they're going to grab and tear and probably pull a lot of the plant out. If that pasture has been allowed to form almost a canopy, and when the cow grabs and tears, there's a much better chance that she'll leave some form of residual behind. And that residual is crucial for driving the regrowth. So hopefully that's a good little tip for people in terms of the first grazing. Now, it, it, it's very easy, Rory, if you've just sown one or two paddocks or a, or a small percentage of the farm, because you can go and graze them when you'd like. If you're in a rain-fed area where you've had to sow the whole farm dry and then you've had rain and it's come up, of course, you will need to go into some paddocks early and you will need to go into some paddocks that are very close to canopy closure. Uh, try to avoid going past canopy closure with a new pasture because that can be a disaster in terms of killing off all the new tillers. Um, 
The last thing I do want to comment is often we talk about a thing called the pluck test, and that's making sure that the plant has a strong enough root system to stop the cows pulling it out before the first grazing. Often in pasture paddocks where I'm looking at that and demonstrating it to farmers, farmers will grab and very cautiously grab it and pick at the pasture. And I, I try to say to them that um, I've never seen a cow go into a newly sown paddock and just take a gentle pick. Often she'll go in there and go, this stuff's beautiful, I'm gonna absolutely go for it. So when you do that pluck test, it's critical that you actually aggressively grab that pasture like you're a hungry cow, because it's too late once you've let them in there and gone, oh gosh, they're going a lot harder than I did with my pluck test. So just a, a, just a funny little observation, Rory, but an important one with those new pastures. Okay, Phil, um, just something that pops up quite a lot and it's shaping up to be a pretty wet winter uh, at this early stage as we sit here in, in May um, and there's been a lot of rain so far, uh, which is a good thing, I guess, for 2020 um, compared to previous years. But, you know, a, a new challenge that that might bring is, you know, grazing really wet paddocks and really wet, wet ground. Um, do you have any advice for farmers there on, on what the best approach is if, if paddocks are getting really wet in winter and it's, and it's difficult to graze? Yeah, I wish I, wish I had a, a really simple rule of thumb for you, Rory. Uh, again, good farmers have been through wet winters and, and they'll have a, an approach to their risk management because that's what it's all about. It's about risk management. If I just talk about the, the main concept behind when it gets wet and what to do, because Dairy Australia's got some fantastic fact sheets with lots of details on the approach to managing if it does get wet, you know, but around on-off grazing and things like that. I just want to go back over the main science, which actually says that if it's going to come in wet um, and you're still going to have to put cows in paddocks to graze, it's better to have higher um, covers than lower. Now, remember I talked earlier about grazing guidelines. This is a good example of they're only guidelines. They're not rules. They're not hard and fast. So if it looks like it's going to be wet and you've got a wet farm, some farmers will choose to run a short round to allow them to then not go out to pasture for a week or two and do no damage without the canopy getting away from them. Those farmers are likely to have an area where they can take the cows safely and feed them without all the issues of mastitis and bogging, like a feed shed or something like that. Other farmers that are gonna to have to have the cows continuing to go out into the grass, the best thing you can do is offer slightly higher covers. And the main reason for that is around cow movement. If cows go into a paddock and with each bite, there's a lot of feed, so they bite and tear, they'll be full relatively quickly without moving too far. If I look at the complete opposite, if a farm's got relatively low cover, you can imagine what those cows are gonna do. They are gonna be in that paddock walking and every time they take a step, they put more mud on more of the grass. Then her friend comes up beside her and looks at the muddy bit and says, I wanna eat that and moves on to the next. So, to summarise that, Rui, I think thinking about your approach and, and having a clear understanding of the effect of cover in wet weather management is really important because I often find farmers who just have missed that little bit of research. So slightly higher covers for some, for others it'll be shorter. But the most important thing is to have a plan and start to enact that plan rather than get to the oh my gosh point of, gee, the whole farm's been pugged. When am I going to recover? Thank you very much, Phil, for that. That was really good uh, insight on, on grazing management. As you said, there's a lot of opportunity there for farmers and some good practical tips as well to, to help people improve uh, their pasture management. So thank you.
Thank you. And I, I just hope farmers that, that have taken the time to listen to this, even if they pick up on one little thing that um, gets them thinking, uh, it, it's made it worthwhile. Exactly right, Tim. Thanks very much to Phil for sharing those insights into profitable grazing management strategies. I hope you all got as much out of it as I did. Dairy Australia's Feeding Pasture for Profit course is a great place to start if you're looking to improve pasture management on your farm. Talk to your local regional extension officer or go to dairyaustralia.com.au to find out more about how to take part in the course. Don't forget, you can find the Dairy Pod archive on SoundCloud or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care till next time.